I'd like to invite you to take your copy of the scriptures and go to Colossians chapter 1, please. I'm very thankful for all the work that our music teams are, are doing each week to uh, prepare music for us and lead us in that. Um, I love the, the clapping for some of, for, from some of you during Blessed Be the Name. If you don't see me clapping, uh, it's not because I have something against that. It's because I have no rhythm. I always clap on the wrong thing. If my wife and I are standing next to each other, and, and I'm always the, the one off, and she's just like, just stop. Just, just stop. Just stop. You're embarrassing me and you. Stop. So, um, so I, I love it, though. Um, so uh, please do that uh, spontaneously. Uh, I think we do, I think it, it's appropriate to, to be expressive in worship. Colossians chapter 1, as I mentioned in, the, in my introductory comments, verse 24 begins a new section. Um, it's called a pericope, if you study the scriptures, and the reason why the ancient writings and people refer to that as pericopes is it's a whole section because when this was originally written, there wasn't punctuation and, and paragraph breaks and things like that. That was added later on. But there were units of thought that were written, and this is a unit of thought here. And it starts in verse 24 of chapter 1. It goes all the way through chapter 2, and at least verse 5, if not all the way through verse 7. And in, verse, uh, in verses 24 through 29, we have one really long sentence in the original language. In, verse, in a lot of our modern-day translations, at verse 27, they have, at the end of verse 26, they have a period, and then verse 27 starts a new sentence. That was added uh, f- to try to help us understand these long, run-on sentences that Paul is famous for. Uh, Paul, he would get so enthusiastic about his message that he would just keep writing and keep going and building. And so as you're trying to break that down and figure out all the units of thought, sometimes that can be a little difficult. But this one section of thought here, Paul begins to talk about his ministry. And he introduced that at the end of the the last section of verse 23 when he says that, "...of which I, Paul, became a minister." And then he begins to describe to his readers, to the Colossians, what that ministry looks like. And so the question before us today is, should we be a minister of the gospel? And the answer is yes. But now that we've answered that question, what does that look like? What does it look like for you to be a minister of the gospel? What does it look like for you to take the truth of God's word and then dispense that to a world that does not know of Christ? What does it look like for you and me to say, yes, as Christ followers, and I'm speaking primarily to those who are in Christ, and if you're here and that's not you, then I pray that today would be the day, and I pray that you would see what this ministry should look like, and you see that that this should be you too. But I pray that, that as we look at this text here, I pray that we would see how we should go about serving Christ. And if we truly become ministers of the gospel, what should we expect? You know, there's, there's, when we sign up for something, there's always that idea of what it is, and then there's the reality of what it becomes. 
When you sign up for a class in school, whether it's in college or graduate school, you get a syllabus. And you get a little heading about what the class is about. And so when you're registering for the class, you look and you say, oh, okay, so this class is about the book of Acts. And so you say, wow, I like the book of Acts, or I want to know more about the book of Acts. I think I will take this class. And so you think at the end of this class, I am going to know about the book of Acts. That's your understanding. But then as you go into the class, then you read the syllabus and you realize, wait a minute here, I've got to write a lot of papers. Wait, I've got to do a lot of reading. Uh, for my classwork, I average probably about 400 pages a week that I have to read for, for classwork. Okay? You know, there's, I'm at that point right now, I'm in the beginning of week eight of these three classes that I'm taking, and of eight weeks, and I, I just want to get through it. I don't even care what I get on my papers. I don't even care. I just want to be done with it because you just want to survive it. Now, when I took these classes, one of the classes was Hebrews, one of the classes was Isaiah, another class was Ecclesiology. I was like, Isaiah, I need to learn more about Isaiah. And so about three weeks into it, I thought, I just need to survive this class. <laughs> my goals suddenly changed because I got more information about what I was expected of me, right? Now, we're ministers of the gospel. What does that mean? What should we expect as ministers of the gospel? Now, this section here is in, I introduced this concept a few weeks ago. It's called a chiasm or a chiastic structure. I put it on the screen about what this text, what this section should look like. And we really have this idea of um, uh, there's, uh, the way they organize it. So I don't know if we're, we're there at that slide or not. We can get there so I can show it. There we go. So in verse 24, you see the word rejoice in the word flesh. And then in, verse, in chapter 2, verse 5, you see the word rejoicing and flesh. Those are parallel thoughts. Uh, and then the second parallel thought in verse, chapter 1, verse 27, make known riches, mystery. And then in chapter 2, verse 2, we see knowledge, wealth, wealth, and riches are the same Greek word, and then mystery. And then your middle con- parallel thought is found in one twenty nine and two one in this, this idea of struggling. Now, it depends on who you read about chiasms or chiastic structures, is whether or not the emphasis is on the outside parallel or the inside parallel. I think that writers can use both. And this was a, this was a, a, a well-known pattern that was used in ancient writing, and it was a way for the people to make points and to show emphasis and to have people remember things. Because remember, back in this day, not everyone had a copy of the Scriptures. Not everyone had copies of writings. And so they couldn't just take their copy and go home with it. They had to hear these things, and then they would re- remember them by that, and so by just by hearing them. And so when they would organize it in something like this, it was going to show this, this, this point or this emphasis. Now, in this chiasm, I think that, and the reason why we call it a chiasm, because it looks like the Greek letter chi, which is like an X. You can see how it, it crosses. Now, in this one, I think rather than the emphasis being on the outside of rejoicing, I think the emphasis is more on the inside of struggling. And so Paul begins to, in this book, he introduces this concept of struggling, and, and he says it in verse 29, he says it of chapter 1, in chapter 2, verse 1, and then in chapter 4, in verse 12, he uses the same word again. And so in this short book, we see Paul talking about how his ministry is struggling at times. And so 
But the, the first parallel thought there is that he's rejoicing in this. And so his ministry is one of joyful ministry. And so what are we going to look at? What's the outline of this? Well, I'm going to show you the outline uh, of all four points. We're only going to do two this week. So the outline of Paul's joyful ministry, number one, is just a ministry of suffering. We're going to see that this morning. We're also going to see it's a ministry of preaching. And then next week we're going to look at it that it's a ministry of intercession and then a ministry of exhortation. So those last two points we will look at next week. The first two points this week. So number one, Paul's ministry was a ministry of suffering. Now I rejoice, I'm reading verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So we see, first of all, that Paul's ministry here, and the ministry that if you and I are going to be servants of the gospel or ministers of the gospel, we need to understand that there's going to be suffering involved, a ministry of suffering. Contrary to popular thought, suffering does not necessarily mean that something is wrong. Don't we typically think that if someone's going through a trial or difficult circumstances, it's because something went wrong or because they did something wrong? And now that's not a new thought. Even the disciples thought this. Remember back in John 9, remember when they came across the man that was born blind? Remember he was blind from, from day one. And remember they asked Jesus a question. Does anyone remember what, what question he asked Jesus? He says, yeah, very good. Who sinned? Who sinned that, that he was born blind? And then Jesus, his response was, was what? Neither one. He says, neither one sinned, but that the works of God may be made manifest. I'm paraphrasing there. Let me give the exact quote there. He says, in chapter 9, verse 2, he says, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God may be displayed in him. And so we see that just because someone's suffering does not mean that something was wrong, or that something, or they did something, that, a sin or, or a mistake. And so we see that Paul here, it's interesting that he says, I rejoice in my sufferings. This is a theme, not only in Paul's writing, but James talks about this. And Peter talks about this as well. In fact, it was common for the New Testament Christian, for the first Christian, to actually say that they rejoiced in their sufferings. How is that possible? We, we live a life of continuous pursuit of comfort and ease, typically. I mean, most of the decisions that we make are made with, with two criteria in mind. Not all of them, but a lot of them. Comfort and safety. That really drives us. Now, I'm not against comfort. I'm not against safety. But I don't know that that should be our overarching pursuit in life. Paul here, he says, he rejoiced in his sufferings for his sake. 
Paul, letter A, if you're taking notes, under a ministry of suffering, Paul took joy in suffering because it was for the benefit of the church locally. He says, for your sake, I rejoice in this. I'm suffering for you. Now, let me ask you a question. Remember, where was Paul when he was writing this? He was in prison, right? What was unusual about the book of Colossians or the church at Colossae? What was unusual was is that Paul did not start this church. In fact, later on we're going to see in this letter that Paul never saw these people. He's just heard from Epaphras about their spiritual growth. We saw that in chapter 1 of how he heard of their faith. In in verse 4 of chapter 1, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for the saints. And so they've only heard from Epaphras of this church. And so he's never physically been there. He's not seen these people. So if that is true, how can Paul say that I rejoice in my suffering for your sake? No doubt he could understand that how this church was started was probably as a result of the influence of his time in Ephesus. A good parallel book to this, or understanding a lot of what's going on in the, the book of Colossians, is also the book of Ephesians. And if you, if you study Paul's third mission trip in Acts chapter uh, 18 and 19 and then into 20, we'll see that Paul, he spent a great deal of time in Ephesus. And while he was at Ephesus, he, under, he went through a lot of persecution and a lot of trials there. And it was because of this time there that the gospel probably went to the man named Ephesus. Ephesus, excuse me, Epaphras, and then in Ephesus, and then Epaphras then went back to his hometown and started the church. And so Paul, he counted the sufferings that he accounted in Ephesus as being on their behalf. Since it was likely from the base of the gospel operations in that capital city of Ephesus that the mission was brought to Colossae. Had Paul not endured those circumstances and difficulties, it's possible the gospel would never have reached the citizens of Colossae. And so what Paul was saying is here, he's saying, I rejoice that I'm going through this trial. I rejoice in my sufferings because I know it's benefiting you personally. If you're a minister of the gospel, you will go through trials. If you're a minister of the gospel, there will be some level of suffering in our lives. How do we respond to that? We don't respond to it in rejoicing or in joy because we're looking for pain or because we want attention and that. No, we know that when I suffer, that it can be a help to somebody else in our congregation. Go to 2 Corinthians 1. I want you to see this text. Hold your place here, please, in Colossians 1 because we're coming right back. But I want to drive that point home that when we suffer for Christ, how we respond to that suffering can be used and often is used to help other people around us. And so we need to understand that we have, we have a bigger purpose in our lives than just us getting through the class. It's not just getting through the class so we're done. It's so that we can be a benefit to other people. Colossians chapter, or excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, 
who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. And so you go through a trial, you go through sufferings, God's grace is manifested to you, and then what happens? What happens is, is that you learn how to be comforted by God, and then that you can teach others as they go through trials as well. So there's a local uh, helping and in, uh, in, in supporting of one another there. One other text just came to my mind. I want to show you, I shared this with the teens in Sunday school today. Go to 1 Peter chapter 1, please. I want you to see this. 1 Peter 1. This one's not on the screen, so you're going to have to head over to 1 Peter 1. If you want to read a book about going through trials, 1 Peter is the book. This, he's writing to a group of people who are going through various trials. As we see this in verse um, 6. In this, you, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Okay, So what Peter's writing to, he's writing to a group of people that are going through tremendous amounts of trials. The word various there, the idea there behind that word is innumerable. The idea is that you cannot count them. And so what Paul, excuse me, Peter's saying to his readers here, he's saying, you are going through so many different types of trials that I'm not even going to begin to list them all. You're going through so many different types of things that, and there's different nuances to them. They're various. They're innumerable. And so there's so many different types of trials that we can go through that we cannot even begin to count them. Now that could be depressing. We think about that. We think about that, that, wow, we have to go through this life and there's so many different types of trials that we can't even begin to categorize them or begin to, to number them. Let's t- turn the page from 1 Peter 1 to go to 1 Peter 4. 1 Peter 4, in verse 7, it says this, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Listen to this. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace there. That word varied grace is the exact same word that was used for various trials, innumerable. And so, yes, the trials that we go through in this life are going to be innumerable, but the grace that God has at His disposal to dispense upon you is innumerable. And so we go through this life, we have a ministry of suffering, but it doesn't matter because the God we serve has grace beyond measure. Grace unmeasured, full and free. We sang that last week. And we see this in this text that Paul, he rejoices in this because he knows. He knows that his sufferings will be a benefit to the church that he is a part of. And so if you're a minister of the gospel, you will have suffering in your life. It may be from external, it may be internal. But how you rely on the grace of God to teach you through those trials will be an influence on your brothers and sisters in this congregation. The ministry of suffering. Now, Paul rejoiced in it because he knew it was for the benefit of the church locally. Secondly, letter B, Paul took joy in suffering because it was for the benefit of the church universal. He says, 
I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. We'll come back to that idea of that filling what is lacking in just a second there. But first he says, for the sake of his body, that is the church. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1, it's on the screen. I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Also, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 9, we're told to resist the devil, to be firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And so we find that when we suffer and we respond with joy in that suffering and relying on the grace of God to get us through that time in our life, that it is a benefit to not just those around us, but to the body of Christ. And so we are helping one another because we are becoming a stronger part of the universal body of Christ. And so Paul rejoiced in this because he knew that God's grace was sufficient. God, Paul knew that God would see him through the sufferings that he was experiencing. And at that moment, it was a prison cell. And Paul knew that when God's grace would lead him through that, that that would be a benefit to the people around him and also to the church at large. So Paul took joy in his suffering because it was a benefit to the church locally and the church universal. But what does this mean when it says, In my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body? There's been a lot of, a lot of ink spilled on this verse here. There's been a lot of debate about this. There's been some false doctrines. I read one account, and I, I, I couldn't find this when I was looking at uh, the... Catholic uh, theological handbook about whether or not this was true or not, but one person I read said this was a verse that was used to support purgatory, the idea of purgatory. I don't know if that's an official doctrine or not, so I I, want to make sure I'm representing them correctly. But I'm just saying that this verse has been used and misunderstood a lot. What is it saying when it says he's filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? To put the word lacking in the same sentence as the word Christ just screams of blasphemy. It, it, could Paul be saying that what Christ did on the cross that was not sufficient? Is that what he's saying there? The answer is no. Because for several reasons. One, the word afflictions there is never used of Christ's cross work. Never in the New Testament. But also it would violate the entire local context of the book. What Paul, the, one of the main points of the book that Paul is writing about here is the preeminency of Christ and the sufficiency of Christ and that it is only Christ that these people need. They need nothing else. They do not need other gods. They do not need other philosophies. They only need Christ. And so that is the whole theme of the book. That is not only just the theme of the book, but it's the theme of the New Testament. If Christ in you, the hope of glory we saw here, but we also see how that we find find our sufficiency in Christ and that the author of Hebrews said that Christ he died once for all and then and then he went and sat down at the right hand of the father and so we see that all through the new testament this main theme that Christ is sufficient Christ what he did is enough and we do not need to add anything add anything else to it so if that's not what's being said what is he talking about here the construction here is very similar to Philippians chapter 2 and verse 30. When we read this, when Paul was talking about Epaphroditus, and he said he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Now, when you read that, you think, man, Philippians, they, come on, get with the program, guys. You know, you, 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 your service is lacking. 
Well, that, that's, not what, that's not what he's saying there. Because if you read the context of Philippians, we see that how um, uh, the Philippians ministered better than most people to Paul. We see in chapter 4, verse 10, he says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You indeed, you were indeed concerned for me, but had no opportunity. And so what he's saying there is we're talking about the idea of physical presence. Paul was saying that the Epaphroditus was going to replace or fill up what was lacking in the Philippian service to him. And the fact that they would be physically present. Because they, the Philippians could not be physically present with Paul. And so he says now that Epaphroditus is coming, he is going to fill what is lacking. You know, it, it, we've, we have a common idea of this in, in our, in our uh, current vernacular. If we have uh, a party... And someone who we would like is the, to be there and cannot be there, we would say, well, it's not the same without you. Or we would say, it's lack, this party's lacking something. It's lacking your presence. That's what's being said here. So take that idea back into Colossians chapter 1. He's filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. What is this talking about? What Paul is saying here is he's saying that Christ is lacking in that he is not physically present to endure the afflictions of this world. But Paul was present, and so he was filling up. And so what was lacking? He was taking his part in the afflictions as being united to Christ through Christ's reconciling work. So letter C, under a ministry of suffering, is Paul, he took joy in suffering because it was a reflection of his union with Christ. And so this is what was, he was saying when he's saying, I'm filling up what is lacking on your part. He's saying, I am physically present to bear the afflictions. Christ has ascended. Christ is no longer here. He is not feel, feeling the physical afflictions because of his physical presence isn't here anymore. He is at the right hand of the Father. But I, Paul, am here and I'm rejoicing that I can show my solidarity with Christ. I can show my union with Christ and that I can receive afflictions and suffering on behalf of Christ. That is what he's saying here. When the world persecutes Christians, they are persecuting Christ. Understand that. When the world persecutes Christians, they are persecuting Christ. And so what Paul is saying here is he's saying, look, when, when I am receiving the afflictions, I am receiving it on behalf of Christ because I am one with Christ. There's several verses I want to put on the screen for you. 1 John chapter 15, 18-21. If the world hates you, know that he is, this is Jesus speaking, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. When the world persecutes Christians, they are persecuting Christ. Acts 9. Remember when this is the account when the Apostle Paul is his conversion. And this is, he was, his name was Saul at the time. And falling on the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He says, Who are you, Lord? He says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. At that moment, where was Jesus? 
Jesus had already ascended. How was Paul persecuting Jesus? How was he, uh, um, how is it said that he was uh, uh, bringing affliction to Christ? It was because what was Paul doing? Paul was bringing Christians and throwing them into jail and persecuting them. But Jesus said, because of you are one with me, my, your afflictions are my afflictions. Galatians chapter 6, verse 17. From now on, Paul says, no, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of what? The marks of Jesus. He's referring to his afflictions there. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 5. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort also. And finally, Philippians 3.10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings by, being com- being, by becoming like him in his death. So when the world persecutes Christians that are persecuting Christ, there's that solidarity there. Now, like it or not, being a Christ follower means that there will be some sort of suffering involved. Don't be surprised by this. Three verses I want to draw your attention to on the screen. Mark 13, verse 13. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. 2 Timothy 3, 12. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And then finally, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. And so Paul's ministry here is a ministry of suffering. He rejoiced in it because he, he knew it would be a benefit to the church locally. He knew it would be a benefit to the church at large, to the universal church. But he knew that it was a testimony to his relationship, his union with Jesus of Nazareth. Let me make a brief little side note here. Suffering or affliction can be external circumstances as well as internal struggles. Both are strategies of the enemy to hinder us from enjoying our union with Christ. So when you think of suffering, don't think of necessarily just third world uh, or closed country persecutions. Don't just think about that. Think about uh, the oppressive worldview that we deal with each day. Think about our internal sin struggle that we are trying to overcome each day. These are all sufferings that we can deal with. Think of physical suffering. Don't think of just physical suffering. Though. Think of spiritual suffering. All Christians will suffer for their faith in one way or another. If not outwardly, then inwardly. Through the long, slow battle with temptation or sickness, the agonizing anxieties of the Christian responsibilities over a family or church, or the constant doubts and uncertainties which accompany the obedience of faith. All of these can be afflictions and suffering. So the application I want to make in this first point before we move to the second point very quickly is this. If suffering is part of our union with Christ and will be a help to others, why do we try to avoid it at all costs? Most of our decisions, as I said earlier, are related to our comfort and safety. What schools do we choose to send our kids to? What home to buy or what neighborhood to live in? What car to buy? What amenities does it have? What ministries to engage in in our local church? Comfort and safety. What we're used to, what we feel comfortable with, what is safe to us. How much money do we have to keep in our bank account? What church to attend? Think about how the issues of comfort and security influence our lives. 
I wrote this last night as I was meditating on this, and I, I, my heart was stirred and convicted of my own sinfulness in this area. I said, I wonder what spiritual fruit we would, we would see God harvest if we let the passion of sharing Christ with others influence our lives as much as comfort and security so often do. I'm not advocating a masochistic approach to life. But what I am advocating is that we embrace suffering not as an inconvenience or an indication that something is wrong, but rather as being counted worthy to suffer for God. Remember the apostles in Acts chapter 5? Remember when they were, they were, they were brought in? They didn't know what was going to happen. This was the first time they, they really found persecution. They, they had healed somebody, and, 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 and they, the high priest and everyone brought him in. They didn't know what was going to happen to him. They warned them. They eventually let him go. But in Acts chapter 5, we see that they left rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the sake of Christ. You know, I, 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 I pray for my brothers and my sisters all over this world. Last night, I told you I watched a video about some brothers and sisters in the country of India. I watched the video as how that they went to baptize. They had 16 people that wanted to be baptized. They had to break them up into groups of four each, and they had to spread it out over a couple months, and they had to do it in different locations. Because otherwise, they probably would have been imprisoned. They had to go down to the river, they had to scout it out, and if people were there, they had to kind of try to make sure that they weren't police or police informants. And one by one, I watched on the video as a person went down into this raging river and identify with Christ, not knowing if when they got up out of the water, the next step would be to the prison cell. Our brothers and our sisters all over this world, they minister in completely different contexts than we do. I don't, want, I don't say that to make us feel guilty. This is a blessing of God that we enjoy, that we should enjoy. But we are responsible for it. I think sometimes comfort and security can drive us way too much. We need to embrace a ministry of suffering. I was going to continue on to point number two. Because of the Lord's Supper, I'm going to stop here. And we'll pick this up next week. And we'll talk about Paul's ministry of preaching, Paul's ministry of exhortation and intercession next week.